known universe with its heroes and marvels. But what of the darkness? In our modern world, this is where monsters dwell. Captain's Log, Stardate 47634.44. These are the voyages of the USS Tomb of Ideas. Our mission to review Marvel Comics Star Trek number 4 and 5. To assist in this mission, my first officer, Trey Lawson, and I have brought aboard Commodore Leyland. Commodore. Damn it, Jim. <laughs> Fascinating. Oh, you didn't tell me you wanted to be the doctor. I'm always happy to be Bones McCoy. <laughs> Especially seventies Bones McCoy. <laughs> Who doesn't love that that medallion and the beard? And he he was rocking the beard. I'm fine with that. Style icon Bones McCoy. Like, yeah. Why give us that scene of him with the beard and that outfit if he's just not going to keep it throughout the entire film? That should be the standard issue Doctor's uniform for Starfleet in this era. Yeah, like Beverly, put on the beard. <laughs> <laughs> and the medallion. medallion. <laughs> <sighs> I, I low-key love Star Trek the motion picture, though. It is actually... As a kid, I was not a fan, but as I have grown older, it's become one of my favorites. I don't anyway, love it. I, I genuinely think it may be the best one. It, it's certainly the closest to the original series in terms of yeah. uh, philosophical approach to science fiction. And trying to, actually, trying to do adult science fiction. I mean, it's unfortunate yeah. they never leave the goddamn bridge, but other than that... Right. I actually did watch the 4K version the other day. It's gorgeous. To prepare for this episode. It really is beautiful. Yeah. I saw it in theaters when it uh, got the, the limited release. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Very pretty. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Andy, welcome to the show. Thank you yes. for having me. And accommodating various different time differences. <laughs> well, that's star dates for you, isn't it? Yeah. No one knows what I mean. Yeah, no one knows how they actually work. <laughs> no, I think I've read two or three different explanations of star dates over the course of my being a Star Trek fan, and none of them are compatible with each other. <laughs> no. They're all very different interpretations. And none of them made a lick of sense. <laughs> <laughs> so, some of our listeners may be wondering why we are covering talking about Star Trek on a Marvel horror podcast. And right. the main reason is... It's our show. Deal with it. But right. the other reason is these are actually um, some fairly horror-themed issues of a Marvel-produced comic that just happened to be a Star Trek comic. Yeah, I mean, you look at the look at the cover of the first one. You've you've got a, a, a skeleton in a cloak. You've got a, sort of a Cthulhu monster. You've got a, a Frankenstein monster. Like these these are spooky comics. Yeah. And we'll get more into like how spooky and how Marvel horror related they get later in the show. Um, but you know, right. since we don't really talk about Star Trek on the show too much, I thought we might 
talk a little bit about how we came to Star Trek. Um, Andy, you're our guest. I know you've probably talked about it on other shows, but how did you come to Star Trek? Uh, I don't remember a time I didn't watch it. Is <laughs> the honest answer. My nan used to watch Star Trek, and I grew up with my grandparents, so I just kind of was genetically disposed to watching Star Trek because she enjoyed it. The, the earliest episode I remember watching is Spectre of the Gun, which I distinctly remember watching when we moved into a new house. And we literally had set up the TV, been the chippy for some chips, and sat on boxes watching Star Trek as we moved in. And then we finished having our tea and we carried on unpacking the boxes. I didn't become a, a fan until, and as with pretty much everything with me, it was related to comics. I watched it and I enjoyed it, but I didn't become a fan until DC Comics started releasing the Star Trek series concurrently with the BBC starting a brand new rerun of the show where they were showing it in the correct, or rather the American Erdate order for the first time. Because the the BBC's general attitude to airing Star Trek from when they started airing it in the summer of 1969 was to randomly pick an episode out of a bag and show it like that. There was no order to it or rhyme or reason to it. So with this rerun in 83, was the DC series? 83, early 84? They were actually showing it in order. That sounds right. It, it, yeah, go on. Because it sort of coincided with... Was it Star Trek 3 or 4? One, one of the movies was yeah, sort of where they picked they, up the rights. They did about a year's worth of issues, I think, and then did the comic adaptation for Star Trek 3. So yeah, it must have been like early 84, late 83. And that, me picking up a comic book, at the same time that the BBC heard Charlie X, which was the first one I watched, just like, oh right, this has got a Spider-Man vibe. These are them when they were younger these are them when they're older there's all this history and life experience and that's I think what brought me to it was the idea that it wasn't just a TV show and it started and it ran for three years and that was it suddenly you had that they were continuing their lives 15-20 years later so they had all this interesting places to go in between the series and the movies and this was before just well just after wasn't it that Ratha Khan opened that floodgate to allowing them to do sequels to TV episodes, which this series that we're going to talk about today couldn't do because they didn't have the rights to the TV show. So it suddenly felt like there was a life and a tapestry and a... Yes, it didn't all fit together. Canon, canon, what is canon? But for the most part, you felt like you were watching these people's lives. And I've never stopped being a Star Trek fan since. I mean, there's peaks and troughs and all that stuff, and I like some shows better than others, and the original will always be the best because that's what I grew up watching. But for the most part, um, I've, I've gone with it all the way, and I've read the books, and I've read the comics, and I've watched the shows, and all of that. I think, I, I, like you, I, I don't really really remember a time without Star Trek, although it must have been a, a time, because uh, Next Generation came out, what, 86, 88? 87, Star Trek. I was, uh, I was, uh, yes, so close. And, like, my dad would watch it in the kitchen while making dinner, so I would just whenever I was in the kitchen bugging him I'd watch Star Trek and eventually uh, I would watch it on my own like the movies I remember I'd watched I'd actually watch the movies on my own and uh, like I think the first Star Trek movie I watched on my own while consciously making a decision yeah I'm gonna watch the Star Trek movie was four uh, mm. the, as affectionately known as the one with the whales <laughs> and then next generation was on every day after school when I got home from school so I'd watch that every day, 4 o'clock, WLTX, 
And eventually, then, the Sci-Fi Channel decided that they were going to do a um, remastered version of the original series. And it was hosted by Shatner. And they would do it nightly. And they would have little commentaries and interviews of, with cast members and things like that. And I watched that religiously. And eventually, I got the Star Trek Encyclopedia... And then I started reading the Shatner novels. Uh, Andy, you've talked about them on Pal- oh, yeah. Pal- Shatnerverse. Love the Shatnerverse. Mm-hmm. Ashes of Eden <laughs> is a better Star Trek seven than Generations. Yes, it, it actually is. Um, yeah, despite the um, Shatner as a god um, <laughs> things yeah. written into it. They really don't get to that until yeah, later. I, I agree with Trey. That comes in in the late. In that first one, there's a there's a little bit more self awareness. I think when, when you've got like. Emperor Tiberius <laughs> of the Mirror Universe. That's when things get a little dodgy. And he's beating Wolf in a fist fight. Right. <laughs> I I love those books as a kid. I'm sorry. I just I just did. Hey, I, I, I read every single one of them. Yep. <laughs> well, yep. Uh, and then before I knew it, I was a Trekkie, and I was never ashamed to call myself a Trekkie either. I never liked the term Trekker, as it was. Yeah, I'm a Trekkie. Yeah, um, Trey. Um. So I did not come to Star Trek. I was born into Star Trek. <laughs> um, my parents were Trekkies from before I was born, um, and I was born a year before Next Generation started, and so Star Trek was always on in my house. Um, Star Trek Next Generation being on television was family viewing time. Like, that was... We all sat together and watched it. I don't remember what my first episode was that I can consciously remember, Um Best of Both Worlds is seared into my memory, though, as, as sort of a, a pivotal moment in TV watching. Like, wait, they can do this? They can just stop in the middle of a story and make you wait? Um, I, at the same time, uh, the original series was coming on in reruns. Um, I forget what channel that was on, but I, I definitely remember watching the original series sort of at the same time that Next Generation was coming on as a new show. Um I know I saw Undiscovered Country in theaters. That would have been 91, so I was like five or six. Um, and sort of like uh, with the what, what you were saying with the comics, um, for me, it was that right around the time I was old enough to be interested in such things, there was a, like, kids' chapter book series of Star Trek Starfleet Academy. And each book was one character from either Next Generation or Original Series as a cadet at the Academy, aimed at young readers. That was Peter David, um, wasn't it? Um, some of them might have been Peter David. Uh, yeah, Peter David did the first two or three. Um, there were some other people involved, too, but but Peter David launched that series. Okay. Um, because Worf's first adventure was, like, the first <laughs> book of the series. I remember that. Um, but... But there was, uh, I remember loving the, the Geordie one, where, where it's all sort of centered around sort of a, a Starfleet Academy capture the flag competition. Um, there were some Data ones and Picard ones that were pretty good. Actually, the, the, the few they did about the original series with Kirk, Spock, and McCoy were also good. But, uh, but yeah, like, again, the same sort of thing where the existence of an expanded universe beyond just the TV shows or the movies gave this sense of these characters having sort of real lives and existences that could be filled in and expanded on and, and really sort of pulled me in. So, yeah, I think we're all 
Trek fans at a certain to a certain degree. Well, now we're all huge Trek fans. Trey, you both, you and I are wearing Star Trek shirts right now. Yes, and they are not the only yes. Star Trek shirts in our closets. No, they I'm aren't. wearing a Star Wars one, so I feel like I'm a traitor. <laughs> uh, no, because uh, I definitely I have gone to at least one convention wearing a an original series red shirt. Oh, I've got one of them. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, Andy. In in the true spirit of Starfleet, we accept all peoples, uh, uh, here. <laughs> even Star Wars fans. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we all, to a certain degree, are um, lovers of the Trek, and so you know when we had the opportunity to talk about two Star Trek comics on the show, I I jumped on it. And absolutely, Andy, we're honored to have you here with us you know we've been fans of yours for quite some time too so and you're, you're, I, you're... I, I, I don't have fans i have friends <laughs> <laughs> this, this podcasting likes a very small pool excellent so um when i need a couch to, 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 no, to... yeah no it's it's so if you need it <laughs> um the, the, the way our country's going right now we might um <laughs> i think we should always go to australia Ooh. Just like a huge podcasting commune in Australia. Yeah. <laughs> that actually sounds really fun. Never mind. Um, so, we're going to go ahead and take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about Star Trek number four. Right after these messages. The Long Halloween, Hush, Dark Knight Returns, The Killing Joke. These are all Batman stories that have been talked about and talked about countless times over the years. They are considered classics, and in most cases, that title is fitting. The thing is, Batman is nearly eight decades old, and whilst those stories are worth talking about, there are plenty of other Bat comics that are being a tad overlooked. And that's where we come in. Hi everybody, my name is Michael Bailey. And I'm Andrew Leyland. Andy and I decided that it was a crime that there were so many great Batman stories out there that weren't getting their due. To that end, we started a show. The Overlooked Dark Knight, a non-index index show. Our goal is to talk about the previously mentioned Overlooked stories and tell you why they're worth your time. The show comes out twice a month, with the first episode focusing on the back books from the late 70s and early 80s. We're starting with the Len Wein run and working our way forward through the books written by Jerry Conway and eventually Doug Mensch. On the second episode of the month, we'll dig into the various adventure comics that were based on the Fox Kids slash Kids WB Batman animated shows because they're really good and hardly anyone seems to remember that they exist. The show can be found at the Fortress of Bailitude Podcasting Network, which is located at www.fortressofbailitude.com. The Overlooked Dark Knight, the non-index index show. Shining a bat signal on the bat stories that no one seems to remember or care about. Because somebody has to. It's small enough to fit on your wrist. But open the secret lid, activate the hidden energy pack, and... Pulling Spock! The Star Pulling Trek Spock. Wrist Communicator, 9-volt battery not included. Spock here. What's up, Captain? Enterprise is lost! I need help. Keep talking. I'm zeroing on you. You're coming in loud and clear. Okay, Captain. I've got you spotted. I'm signing off. 
Star Trek Wrist Communicators, two to a set. Enterprise sold separately by Mego. Okay, Star Trek number four holds the distinction of picking up directly after Marvel's adaptation of Star Trek The Motion Picture. So, if you're going to look at canon, 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 what is canon? Uh, this is the first adventure they have after Star Trek The Motion Picture. Because as has been established since then, there was a five-year mission after Star Trek The Motion Picture. It was written and edited by Marv Wolfman. The art was by Dave Cockrum and Klaus Janssen, although it looks much more like Klaus Janssen than Dave Cockrum to me. Um, because I haven't written a synopsis, because I'm incredibly lazy, I have stolen most of this from a Den of Geek article about Marvel's history with Star Trek uh, by Mark Buxton. The cover of the fourth issue has Kirk and a Starfleet officer of indiscriminate name. We don't know who that is. Could be Chekhov. Don't know. Uh, Firing at a giant skeleton with red eyes and a red hood. Spock is tapping Kirk on the shoulder, comedic style. Uh, as a bug-eyed monstrosity approaches from the rear. Uh, it's interesting that they were for a comedy cover for the first uh, gym. Um, you may want to look this way. Uh, but, you know, it's it's fighting big skeletons and big monsters, and there's a Frankenstein's monster on there, and it's the Starship Enterprise's weirdest voyage. Jim's probably much more interested in looking at the big skeleton because there is a buxom blonde running at him. And, of course, <laughs> as we all know, that's Captain Kirk's jam. What do you think about the cover? It, it's actually really nice. Yeah, it is. I like it. It's it's striking. Yeah. Very colourful. There's a reason I picked this one for the cover art for this episode. <laughs> and it's also sort of... Um, it's surprising in that they are clearly in, like, a haunted house or castle or something, but you can see the Enterprise out the window. Yeah, I was going to say, I love how they've crammed everything so you still see the Enterprise. There's lightning outside the window, which goes with the whole Hammer Horror vibe that they seem to be going right. for. I love that they're wearing the jackets from the end of the motion right, picture. Right, the away the mission. End, but they're not brown for some reason. Right. They're bright yellow because it was a Marvel comic in the 70s. It, is, it, it, it catches your eye, doesn't it? It's very colourful. It's very interesting. It clearly says Star Trek because it's got Spock and the Enterprise on it. And that was all you needed to say Star Trek back then, apparently. The story. Kirk and his crew must deliver a red eyeless alien named Raytag Magora back to Thallus, the prison Magora escaped from. Magora is stark raving mad and begs Kirk not to take him back to Thallus, warning the captain that if he approaches Thallus, his entire crew will become prisoners of the evil place. And I have only just noticed that Thallus is almost like Thallus, but let's not go there. Kirk heads to Thallus and encounters the Nutso Space Haunted House. Kirk, Spock, Bones and some red shirts, including an Andorian, beam down to the haunted house and encounter Dracula. Not just any Dracula. The crew of the Enterprise do battle with a Dracula that looks exactly like Marvel Comics' version of Dracula from Tomb of Dracula. Because Marv Wolfman also wrote Tomb of Dracula. So, you know, I think we're kind of saying that that version of Dracula exists in the Star Trek universe. After the Dracula encounter, Kirk and company come face to face with Marvel's version of the Frankenstein monster. After that, a bunch more monsters appear and one of them looks like the Man-Thing. So if you ever wanted to see Marvel's Legion of Monsters against the crew of the Enterprise, this is the issue for you. The whole crew of the Enterprise end up tackling the Klingons who take Kirk, Spock and the rest hostage. And that's how they chose to follow up the motion picture. Uh, well, I was just 
thinking. Like, it's funny because the whole point of the motion picture <laughs> is Kirk going to the Admiral saying, I will do anything to get another mission with this ship. And here we open with Kirk saying, I will do anything to not go on a mission with this ship. <laughs> I will do anything to not do this mission with this ship. Right, right. <laughs> oh, well, I love as well. After the beautiful and cerebral Star Trek, the motion picture, they followed up with this. Right, right. <laughs> well, the story is very much an episode of the TV show. Oh, yeah, it's very Cat's Paw, isn't it? It is. It's actually a little bit better um, than Cat's or, Paw, in my opinion. <laughs> oh, yeah, but I met it's got... Or, or was it uh, Dagger of the Mind? Is yeah. that one of the spookier yeah. ones? It's, yeah. it's very much, we want to do like a Halloween-esque story, and that's clearly what Cat's Paw was. Right. So this follows the same thing. And it's got a little bit of Star Trek silliness to it, like when they encounter the big green floating hand. The first thing you see right. is, is a really good splash page of them encountering a haunted house in space, complete with gates. Yes. I don't yes. know that gates work in space. I I can't imagine they'd be much no. use. <laughs> no, not when there's no up or down and you just kind of drop over them. But that doesn't mean that the splash page isn't as effective as the green hand grabbing the Enterprise saucer section. It works visually. Right. Or, or even, I mean, less, less in terms of spooky, but it's the kind of non-sequitur visual of, like... Abraham Lincoln flying yeah, in space. It's exactly it is exactly tapping into that TV show vibe. And more than anything, when I was reading these, I was thinking, they're just doing the original show, aren't they? They don't make yes. any effort mm-hmm. to draw Shatner as he appeared in the motion picture. They are drawing him as he appeared in the TV show. Complete with the little kiss curl and the same hairdo, and he looks he looks younger. William Shatner would love this. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Now, they they did uh, at least sort of concede to uh, Scotty's motion picture appearance. He has, like, the mustache mm. and the, the different hairstyle. But you're right, specifically Kirk always looks like 60s Kirk. Yeah. It's also fairly obvious that they had pictures of the motion picture people for reference for some people, but not for others. Mm-hmm. For example, um, in the next issue, they, they talk about uh, Christine, which we're assuming is Christine Chapel, the the, right. the character they draw looks nothing like <laughs> Major Barrett. Right, like clearly they were given reference materials for the bridge crew, and that mm. was it. Yes, and most of the reference material seems to come from the TV show. With the Enterprise as well, do you think he just built the model and then just drew from that? Because some of these angles don't appear in the film, but he but he really right. captures the the refit version of Enterprise very well. Right. Yeah, it's it's an interesting blending of audience expectations based on what they've seen of the TV show, plus some of the visual flourishes of the movie. And I, I kind of miss this now. It's like when, when Star Wars came back with The Force Awakens, they didn't set the comics in between The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi. And they seem like they go right. out of the way to not do that now, because they're deathly afraid of trepping on the toes of whatever the creators are going to do next. Whereas in the 1780s, they just didn't care. Battlestar Galactica right. stories yeah. in between now episodes. Now it is so important. Yeah. It's so important now that everything fit together canonically and and that, that the comics not contradict some future movie that doesn't exist yet. Yeah, and they, they just didn't care. They just, we're going to do this and we'll make it fit later. And that's kind of refreshing. Yes, I agree. <laughs> it's actually a little bit better than, like, say, we'll make it fit later than the idea that, oh, we're just going to toss out all that continuity. Hmm. That, that that that's a or, that's a legend. 
Right, right. That that's the the Star Wars thing now is is anything made before the Disney buyout is is a myth or a legend of the Star Wars universe. Yeah, I always love that. Like any of it's real. <laughs> right. <laughs> Fair. Uh-huh. Um they actually even make the disco uniforms look good here. Yeah. Yeah, they do, yeah. They make all the uniforms look good. The colors are a little more yeah. vibrant. They're not quite as beige as the the movie version. And it, but they, and they fit the color scheme of the comic a lot better as well, which yes. is good. My only problem with with the the actual writing of the issue is they keep switching between the omniscient narrator and the captain's logs. And I think when you're doing Star Trek, mm-hmm. you should make a decision: Are we going to have a narrator or are we going to have the log entries? Because I read this first page initially, going, "So is this a log entry or not?" Right. And it's right. only when you turn the page that you go, "Well, actually, the splash page is is not part of the story yet." The splash page is a throwback right. to like older comics where the splash was another cover. Right. Right. It's almost the record scratch moment of you see where hmm. we're headed and now let's roll back and, and, and tell you how yeah, we got it's, there. It's the what's his name in it. You're probably wondering how I got here. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think a, a, a simple fix to that would have been color code hmm. them. Let the yellow caption boxes be for captain's log and have a different color caption box for narration yeah, that's a good idea that because it's certainly uh, where is it there's one page where it, it's it's all the same color and suddenly you're like so this isn't the log entry anymore right okay right and they really make an effort here to make this these the marvel monsters yeah like they do i didn't even re- realize that man thing was in this book until you pointed out andy it's just like but he's there in the background. Yep. But that scene where Dracula shows up, I'm like those motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> well, not just that Dracula shows up. Um, where is it? There's a line of dialogue. The next page. I know it isn't. Uh, it's not. Um, it's Spock who says it, which is even funnier. Um, is it his line about um, Dracula was an Earth legend who supposedly survived 500 years until slain by a man named. Quincy Harker. That bet. Right. Yep. And, and Quincy Harker is from Tomb of Dracula. <laughs> like, Quincy Harker is present in the novel Dracula as an infant in the epilogue. <laughs> so it is clearly supposed to be Tomb of Dracula's Dracula, then. There's not even any ambiguity. Right. The, that, that, Quincy Harker, that Quincy Harker destroyed Dracula at some point in the past sets Star Trek in the future of the Marvel yep. Universe. So this totally legitimizes us talking about this on our show, because... Well, this... this um, here it is. It's, it, it's page 17. Yeah. Uh, fascinating, Captain. Dracula was an Earth legend who supposedly survived 500 years until slain by a man named Quincy Harker. There were reports of his return, but they proved to be unfounded. I, and you look, the, the, the response to that is perfectly in keeping in character. I am aware of the Dracula legends, Mr. Spock, because, of course, Kirk knows everything. <laughs> You know, right, off the top right. of his head, this guy could ream off the Clanton gang. Well, he's a collector of antique That's, books, so he probably read about a, it. I antique comics, apparently. <laughs> I want to see Captain Kirk's comic collection. <laughs> it's mostly just old playboys, dude. <laughs> that that checks out. <laughs> yeah. For the articles, though. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. He's an intellectual, remember? Mm. <laughs> I also love just how exciting they make something as simple as beaming over to the haunted house. Like the just the the dynamic uh, shouting of energize as they beam in. Seventies Marvel, everything was beautifully melodramatic. Yeah, um, that Frankenstein monster also looks very much like the Marvel version of Monster of Frankenstein with the fur vest and hmm. the, the hairdo. Yeah, 
Uh, the only thing I have with it is that well, like, there's a couple of issues with it, but may, mostly I don't understand page three, where they are in the transporter room and then they leave the transporter room, go to the bridge to be told by Uhura that the guy is now beaming There's into no- the transporter room. Why did they not just stay in the transporter room? With phasers yeah. drawn. Like, why Why not just have the extra forces already there? Yeah, that didn't make a lot of sense to me. Although it's lovely to see that Yorman Rand is still around. Yes. Yes. Although... Um, and, and that Marvel held on to those uh, security uniforms from... from- the from the motion picture. picture, yeah. So that's that's it's all ties in really nicely with what we've just established in the comic adaptation to the motion picture. So let me get your opinion here. Is the prisoner supposed to look like a xenomorph? It's got a little bit of that, but in, in terms of the the mouth and sort of the the smooth forehead and the body, like it's like it's like somebody drew the xenomorph from memory and then realized, oh crap, we don't have that license. Yeah. Add some horns and stuff. You know, let's make them red. Yeah. It's, Pull him red. It's like somebody drew from a description of a Roger Corman knockoff of a xenomorph. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can't not see that. <laughs> this is like the two. Do- it's like somebody saw Galaxy of Terror and was like, "Oh, let me let me jot this down." This is, this is the two dollar fifty version of Alien, right? <laughs> Shit, I think you're right. I think I can see the zipper. <laughs> oh, gotta love- but also that that it's Marvel Comics, so he's got to have the the shorts on. He's got to have briefs. the shorts on. Yeah. You've also the thing with this is the coloring's lovely, particularly on it background is. shots of the Enterprise just flying through space. They don't go for the traditional black with white stars. They have blue. They have blue space and different colors, and that really makes it pop. I did get a little bit confused on pages 11 and then there's two pages of adverts and pages 14. I honestly thought that was Chekhov making out with that girl. Uh, kind of looks like him a little bit. And then in the next like, panel, Chekhov's with Sulu hanging around in the, the recreation room. I'm like, okay. It does look a lot like him on that same page where you have Chekhov mm. too. Yes. Also, why is Chekhov packing heat in the gymnasium? <laughs> with, a, with a Russian-made phaser. Did you catch that? Yes. Which, which must not be standard <laughs> issue. Even my Russian-made phaser did have no impact. And I can just see Kurt looking at him going, you're getting your phasers imported from Russia, dude. <laughs> <laughs> He's wearing it on his belt all the time now, like an NRA <laughs> I will say, though, even it's so funny that, and they couldn't have known, but the, the Sulu-Chekhov relationship here Reminds me so much of their opening scene in Star Trek Five, yeah. where they're lost in the woods. Yeah, where they're just hanging out together. The, the, that sort of bantery kind of dynamic that I don't know that you see a whole lot up to this point, but but someone had the idea for it occasionally, like in a mock time. They they have a little bit first. We're going to Vulcan, then we're going somewhere else, then we're going back to Vulcan. They have that a little, but it's not. You're right. There's not a right. lot of it. What I did like though in the recreation room, the outfits that you were in the TV shows. That's what Kirk was when he's showing Charlie X how to do a throw. Only it was oh, only yeah. the wraparound tune. It was red rather than green. But it's the same idea. Sulu is wearing something sort of like that, but a different color in the motion picture. Yes. At, uh, when when they they haven't launched yet. Yeah, you're right. And the bottle with, with the black shirt underneath. The bottle that the guy who isn't Chekhov picks up to chuck at the monsters is the same bottle Evil Kirk drank out of him in Enemy Within. Well, yes. from my understanding, <laughs> the Marvel bullpen watched a lot of Star Trek reruns back in the day. Like, I, I'm sure I, I, I've heard it referenced that. before that, like, you know, we would watch Star Trek on 
the local New York station because it would be on at whatever insane hour of the night we were up still drawing mm. or writing. So, well, Dave, Dave Cochran was definitely well, and, a fan. Oh yeah, sure. And, and there's certain certainly crossover sensibilities, right? Like the the kind of fusion of melodrama and genre and uh, comedy, like that. That's all very much the Marvel formula too. Yeah. And the bending of genre. They're doing a horror story within a science yes. fiction framework and doing a comedy within a science fiction framework. So all of that exists. That's very Marvel comics. Anyway, let's go and take another quick break and we'll come back with our look at issue five right after these messages. Where am I? In the palace of glittering delights. Who are you? I am Andrew Leyland, and for over 200 episodes, I have covered everything genre-related, from the obvious things that everyone talks about, Star Trek, to deep dives into the early issues of The Amazing Spider-Man, via the obscure, such as ITC's experimental science fiction dramas The Champions or Department S. It's very cosmopolitan, you never know who you meet next. In the Palace of Glittering Delights... Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. Available from Two True Freaks and via your podcatcher of choice. We're at Monster Stadium. Frankenberry steps to the plate. I'll fill it with my delicious strawberry-flavored cereal, Frankenberry. You're out! A good nutritious breakfast with Count Chocula is a real hit. Frankenberry. Count Chocula! Both you guys are dying. <laughs> Star Trek, the motion picture, collector's close-ups. It's Mr. Spock. And Lieutenant Uhura. You can get Star Trek, the motion picture, collector's close-ups. Two on each specially marked box of the Monster Cereals. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. We're continuing for a look at these two issues of Marvel's Star Trek series with our look at Star Trek number five. So after being confronted by the Klingons on uh, the haunted house in space, uh, there's some fighty-fighty, and the Klingons kidnap Spock and take it back to the Klingon ship. And this is where the Klingon captain reveals his evil plan to Spock, because Spock got him monologuing. And it's revealed <laughs> that they are responsible for the monsters that were showing up on the station and the Enterprise, because they've captured a horror film archivist. Is that a real job? Because, <laughs> <laughs> like, if, if that is a genuine job in the Star Trek future, I, I'm just like, I'll, I'll do that gig. Yeah. I, I will sign up to a starship to be your horror film archivist. That sounds so much safer than, like... Anything guarding the neutral yeah, zone. Sounds safer than any other job. Like, <laughs> I, um, I, when I was trying to figure out which shirt I wanted for my Star Trek shirt, I was trying to figure out what would my job be in the Star Trek universe. I'm a teacher. <laughs> I'm a historian. And the only reference we have, and I'm sorry to go this tangent from the original series, is um, the woman from the the Con episode, who right. apparently is a historian. The ship's historian. The ship's historian. Yeah. But it always you always get the idea that that's her side gig on the ship. Like she has other responsibilities as well. But that's yeah, her side gig because they all seem to multitask. 
you know, we've seen, we saw right. Uhura take the call in an episode. We've seen Chekhov be right. a communications officer, as well as be security, as well as be navigation. So they must all have, right. they must all have a specialist subject, is my thinking. But they can all do all the gigs. Even Kelvin, even Kelvin timeline, there's that bit where Kirk is like, okay, Chekhov, you're in engineering now. Yeah. So they, they, must, I'm like, they must train in other aspects of the ship as well. But I'm like, wait, my occupation isn't important enough for me to, for it to be a full-time job on a starship? That, that's... <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, so they've hooked the horror film archivist up to a thought projector machine, which, again, looks like it is a refugee from Ridley Scott film. A little bit. It, it, it's like... It's a little bit alien technology, but it's also, a, as in the film series Alien, but also a little bit uh, Mobius Chair from Fourth World DC Comics. So then it's revealed that the woman that they found on the Haunted House is actually a thought projection of the archivist. It's his dead wife, because of, yes. cor- of course it is. And that there's actually an amplifier for the thought projector embedded in the prisoner's head. And that's how the, the projections are getting onto the Enterprise. And then uh, there's some stuff happening, some fighting for monsters. Uh, and then Spock uh, asked to be let alone with the prisoner. And the Klingons, for some stupid goddamn reason, let Spock be alone with the prisoner. Because <laughs> these aren't very bright Klingons. No, they are not. To the point... Okay, we'll get there. I'll get there. I'll get there eventually. Sorry. I'm getting off topic. <laughs> The all new, all different tomb of ideas, folks. So, Spock finds a way to com- use the projector machine to communicate with the Enterprise crew to tell them to destroy the girl who's brought aboard the Enterprise. So, Bones is like, of course. This makes total sense to me, and I'm totally going to re- agree with Spock, because that's totally something I do regularly. <laughs> and he phasers the girl. And the- thus, thus fulfilling the, the cover image. Yes. Dr. McCoy Killer. Yes. So, with the death of the thought projection version of the wife, um, the film archivist awakens, uh, and the monsters are then unleashed on the Klingon ship. Uh, Spock rescues the film archivist and beams him back aboard the ship, and there is a Hulk Twinkie ad, and that's the end. And, and by the end of things, they're cracking jokes. In a, in yes. a scene literally ripped off from the, the TV show, wasn't it? Where they're all having a, a goofy gag at the end. Right, right. With with Kirk smiling, McCoy rolling his eyes, and Spock just raising his eyebrow. Do, 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 like, you do, see do. that exact shot at the end of... <laughs> <laughs> yes, I heard that music in my head when mm-hmm. I read this. I quite like that. I, I, well, first of all, the cover's Frank Miller. Is it yeah, now? That's a Frank Miller cover. That's That's cool. That makes sense. So that was quite a nice surprise. <laughs> Frank Miller was doing, and it's also a uh, it's also a good cover. Yeah, it's a very very striking cover. I love the shoe on and of Spock onto it again because you know, wasn't, yeah, wasn't Star Trek without Spock. Uh, the art's a bit scratchier in this issue. Do you not think? Even though it's the same team, a little bit. I didn't find the artwork as good in this one as in the previous issue. I don't think the drawings of the Enterprise were quite as impressive. Although the one on page seven, where it's with the Klingon ship, that's a good one. But it it, right. it just had a feeling... There's less detail. Yeah, like this one was a bit more under the deadline gun than the other one was. Well, we've got a change in writing team. Like It seems like there, there was a lot of sort of behind-the-scenes changes for this one. Hmm. Yeah, and that's, uh, maybe they didn't get the scripts until time, or maybe Dave Cockrum only did light 
pencils and Klaus Janssen had to finish it up because he's famously quite scratchy. I don't know. So I didn't find the right. art as impressive this time round. And I didn't think the colouring was as good this time either. No, because there's a shot of the Enterprise and the Bird of Prey in space around the, the, haunted, ha- the haunted house and it looks nowhere near as good as last issue. Hmm. Right. So I, I don't know whether that is also a product of the fact that this issue has two editors credited. So, Possible, so, could, so it could be any one or all of those. Yeah. Also, it seems like somebody, either somebody was not in on the joke or maybe just got reined in a little bit. But the monsters this time are more generic movie monster references. Yeah. So I, I see the the spaceships from the uh, from War of the Worlds. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I had not seen those. Brilliant, good cast. Um, but but none of the Marvel references like the last issue. I wonder if somebody pointed out we don't want Paramount owning our monsters. Right, right that's a chance because this was put out, uh, and I think Andy, you have the digital collection mm. of this, the the, the DVD um, digital collection that was put out by uh, Paramount, CBS yeah, Studios when it was Paramount Comics. Yep. So and so there may be rights problems with it, and that's why they decided to go in a different direction. But yeah, I, this, I thought the setup for this was much more interesting than the the conclusion. The plan, the plan here, it's not a Klingon plan. There's, as I think you said earlier, there's no honor in this. Mm. There's no honor, and the, the whole conception of Klingon honor hasn't been developed at this point. So, like, you can't you can't hold them accountable for what Klingons become in Next Generation. I suppose not, but I will. There is also the thing that they've gone through an awful lot of trouble with this plan the conversion of the space station into the haunted house the commitment to this you've got to admire them <laughs> but it's not a Klingon plan it's a Romulan plan yeah and it's 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 kind of like there's an awful lot of they've put a lot into this for what seems like very minimal output right it doesn't seem like it's worth the effort that they've gone to just the whole idea of kidnapping a, th- a film archivist a horror film archive specifically and strapping him into a thought projector it's just Andy have you been watching Star Trek Lower Decks yes it's a Lower Decks idea yeah <laughs> yeah you're not you're not wrong it's a low it, if they'd done this on Lower Decks and played it for laughs it probably would have worked right. much better because you've also got to, to I mean again I think Trey's right we can't really hold it accountable for what we now know of Star Trek like at this point all all that really exists of Klingons at this point is stuff from the original series and Mark Leonard shouting at Viger. Yeah, and also, would Kirk even have any knowledge of 20th century horror films? Right. I buy that he is read Bram Stoker's Dracula, because we've established that they're all very smart in Star Trek and they're all big on their literature, and there's no reason right. to believe Dracula as a novel won't survive four, two, three, four hundred years into the future. <laughs> I'm not entirely convinced they're still going to be watching Dracula AD 1972. <laughs> if, if Trey has anything to say about it, they will. Yeah, I, I, love, well. I love Dracula AD 1972. I think it's a brilliant film. I don't know that it's high on Captain Kirk's much watch. No, right. he's, he's watching like Horatio Hornblower miniseries yeah. and He's he's watching Master and Commander with Russell Crowe. And he's watching right. that and going, this seems very familiar. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Master and Commander is one of the best Star Trek films. Yeah. Of. It's one of the best Star Trek films that, that isn't called Star Trek. 
Also, the other thing that this story reminded me of was, again, my my experience of Star Trek skewed toward the the novels and the novelizations and things. Um, you ever read the the mini series of novels uh, called Invasion from the mid nineties? Each yes. book was a, a different TV. There was original series, Next Gen, Gen, DS9, and yeah. Voyager. I read that. And, and the whole premise of the, the original series one and the Next Generation one are they encounter an alien race that looks like all of the creatures that humanity has developed, like fear legends around demons and monsters and things, and their weapons involve projecting fear at the Enterprise. I've not read that one, but that, that is very. It's, that, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's this, but with but without the Klingons. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't see how that plan works without a film archivist tray. <laughs> like, and the Klingons here. You know, when I was reading this, I was like, "Oh, the Klingons are so ugly here." And then I rewatched the motion picture. And I'm like, "Oh no, that's completely accurate." That was the earliest version of the forehead ridges. Was just the single stripe down mm-hmm. the the forehead. Down the middle, yeah. It was almost like a mohawk. Yeah. It looks like you did, can detach it though. <laughs> But it looks kind of like Man-Thing's trunk. <laughs> well, looking at page 23, is the implication not that it's attached to the spine? That seems right. I mean, I, I have no idea if that's true or has ever been established anywhere, but if you look at them, it goes right around the back of the head and it looks like it, it is right. part it of the spine. Right, it seems to be going yeah. through the hairline. Yeah. 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 Interesting. That, that tracks. But yeah, that's, again, for, for, the, for the modern version of Klingons, their only reference that they had to work from was the the makeup that Mark Leonard was wearing in that one scene of motion picture? Hmm. The first five minutes of the film, and that's right. It. And 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 for what it's worth, the uniform basically remains unchanged for yeah. decades. Yeah, yeah. There, are, I, I don't really have a problem with the depiction of the Klingons in this. I actually think they did a very good job on it, given the limited reference material they will have had. I mean, maybe they got to go and look at the costumes. It's unlikely. Right. But maybe they But did. they might have gotten some nice high quality photos. Yeah. Yeah, they might have got some continuity polaroids or whatever. So and yeah. Speaking of this dude, this film archivist, how much PTSD is he gonna have after this episode after this issue? He's, he's not gonna have any. Star Trek guys just, just shake this stuff off. Right, right. He, he's you can't see him, but he's actually in the background of that last shot laughing along with Kirk. My wife is dead. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's sort of so. So, I was thinking about this in terms of issue four. You know, we, we these are the first two issues after the adaptation of the motion picture. Nobody has referenced Decker. Nobody's referenced Ilea. Nobody's referenced nope. any of the sort of experiences of that or the emotional effect it might have had. It, it is all just gone. Is it entirely possible that the people who made this comic have not yet seen Star Trek the motion picture? Oh. Well, but they've adapted the comic. Yeah. They've adapted the comic. Yeah, but so they may have thought then, let's extrapolate on what happened to Decker and Ilea. That's a good point. I think Trey, if they've only, Trey saying if they've only read the script, they, they should still think maybe those characters should have a lingering effect. Yeah. Or at the very least, like a thought bubble or something. Yeah. <laughs> like that would, that could even be sort of Kirk not wanting to take that mission right away is look at what my crew has just been through. Yeah. I see what you're saying. Whereas this just feels like, yeah, that was an episode. This is the next episode. Right. right. It, it It's just very striking that, that... And again, they're adapting... It seems like the perspective is still... Not so much we are expanding on the movie, but we are adapting the TV show Star Trek. And in the TV show Star Trek, things are episodic. 
Yeah. Because what is interesting, and they could have had access to the 22 scripts that were developed for Star Trek Phase 2, <laughs> and it right. would have been really fun if they'd put some of that in this. And again, yeah. the letters it's his the letters page to this issue were Mike W. Barr says, we don't have the rights to the TV show. But I wonder if right. they did. It would have been nice to see them look at those scripts maybe and take some ideas from there. But maybe they didn't have the rights to them either. But it doesn't make sense they don't have right to Decker and Ilea. You're right. They were just in the last issue. Right. And in fact, that at this point, that story has been adapted or printed at least twice because the motion picture was a magazine. Yeah. And then it got special, reprinted as the first three issues of this. Yeah, because there's a letter again in the letters page. A guy complains about that. Right, because he bought it twice, letter. basically. Yeah. Why, indeed, unless your intention is to make money and to heck with the fans? And I'm like, you do know they're a business, right? <laughs> that is funny. I mean, it would have been nice. Yeah, it would have been nice if the if maybe the adaptation was was a bit expanded in the three issues. On Since what it's now three issues, yeah. Yeah, but and they didn't do that, so I kind of get his point a little bit. But the, Mike W. Barr's argument, his reply, is basically, well, we're a business, but also. Right. Lots of people who have picked this comic up didn't get that magazine, so we didn't. Right. We didn't just like, want to. There start are people with who would four. buy a new number one, yeah, but would not buy the magazine. So that's his argument for doing it that way. So I can kind of see his point, but they'd done this before sure. Battlestar Galactica. But with yeah. Battlestar Galactica, they completely redid the adaptation for the three issues from scratch, with the exception of a couple of pages, because the adaptation of Galactica that appeared in the Super Special was based on the script. And when they filmed it, they cut out entire sequences relating to Jane Seymour's character dying, having space cancer, and dying. Mm. So that's in the comic adaptation that's in the Super Special, but in the three issues, it's completely excised and redone. So the three issues are actually a better adaptation of what you saw on screen than the magazine. And I'm wondering if this guy is, is... is kind of thinking maybe you should have done something like that. But there isn't a situation like that with the motion picture. What you saw on the screen was what they adapted. There are... There's one letter in there that actually asks about a scene that's in the adaptation that's not in the theatrical yeah. version of the movie. And, and and they say, well, yeah, we were given the screenplay. We adapted the screenplay. They then cut stuff out when they released it. Yeah, the, Which the space we, we now people. know it's not so much that they cut stuff out as they did not have the time and budget to pull it off yeah but. the 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 spacewalk sequence i don't know if that's on the new 4k blu-ray it is is, is it um it, of bits of it i i don't the whole so there was there was an expanded one that was like the the archive sequence where where they're like finding there's the the, the there's much more exploration of viger i think in the screenplay than what got filmed hmm. but everything that they had that they could use i think is in the new version yeah, because I think I don't think that the space rock sequence was ever completely filmed, was right. it? Right. No, they they abandoned yeah. it partway through. Fascinating. Hmm. That's interesting. Anyway, yeah. So that that this is quite a, what I like about Mike W. But what I like about Marvel's letter pages at this point is they don't really play the game over much. There's a lot of Stanley hard sell, but they are mm-hmm. quite honest in their answers, and that kind of goes yeah. away a little as you go through the eighties. Right. The the sort of post would it be the shooter era i yeah. guess sort of going into like secret wars and stuff yeah once they start being bought out by big conglomerates the honesty of the letters pages kind of goes away a bit but i kind of like that and it's it's all over the letters pages of the 70s and the planet of the apes magazines are the same people will take them to task for why is this different 
and they're like you adapted the novel not the film and the guy who writes the letters page said no we're both adapting the script and right. when it becomes a film that changes but we're both adapting the original script not the movie this so is the, the problem of things happening concurrently is sometimes even from the same source text different decisions get made yeah different editors reshoots as well that they can't allow for in the, when they're adapting the script so I, I, I quite like that they include the letters pages in the digital one as well because they're just as much a part of giving you a vibe of the era of the story indeed yes I, I always like a good uh, vintage letters page yeah. to, just to not just in terms of the, the vibe of sort of the books as they were coming out but also the way fans were responding to and receiving the books mm. in the moment because it's interesting as well to look at the letters page and say how much the, the lot of these people saying how much they enjoyed the film whereas mm-hmm. retroactive reading will have you believe that we all hated it right which we didn't at the time it went no. down moderately well and it's only later on people decided that it was boring and it wasn't even like the fans who didn't like it it was more like studio execs did hmm. not like it. And Leonard Nimoy and, didn't like it. Yeah. And that's why... And it, and it wasn't even that it wasn't a success. It was just way over budget. Hmm. But even with that, it was still very successful. Sure. So it, it is nice to look back and go, well, actually, at the time, people enjoyed it. People quite yeah. dug but on it. But, like, the higher-ups didn't like it, and that's why Wrath of Khan was almost a TV movie. Hmm. Right. They're like, we still... And, and we even still- when it became a theatrical movie, there were very strict limits on, on budget and special effects. Yeah, it's still all on the bridge. Right. <laughs> it baffles me that they don't really get off the ship until Star Trek Three, and even then, yeah. they're at home. Right. Yeah, or they're on that. They're on another planet set. Right. Yeah. With the, the Genesis planet, which is really just sort of the same old set that you'd see in in any episode. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's four before they even get any location filming at all. Isn't Pretty it? much. Yeah. Um, and I think. I guess five, you get an alien planet with the the galactic peace planet. Yeah, there are there are set pieces on planets in five. Right. I can never really hate five, on five, five and six have set pieces. Yeah. I can't really hate on five. I always think five. I it's hearts in the right. I place. I have a certain nostalgia for five. As a kid, I really liked that one for some reason. I think because it had the humor of four, but it was more science fictiony because they were going to other hmm. planets and things. And and so, uh, just as as a kid, that appealed to me. Yeah, and I can I can see that. I I always think that that five is a good third season episode. Yes, absolutely. So it's it's not the complete write off that everyone says it is. Whereas other people diss on three. I think three is a, a mediocre second season episode, but it's still good. Yeah, I I, I think three sometimes feels a little more mean spirited than I like my Star Trek to be. Yeah, um, it's a meaner film. But but that doesn't make it bad. It's just a different vibe than what I'm usually in the mood for. Yeah. Five just has weird decisions being made. Like, let's have Uhura do an erotic dance to distract people. Right. Uh, I, I honestly think we don't get a real bad Star Trek movie until Generations. And it's funny because uh, I, I, a while back I listened to the uh, writer's commentary on Generations. And... You know, they also wrote um, All Good Things, yep. the the final series episode. And they are adamant that they messed up and did those backwards, that Generations should have been the series finale and that All Good Things should have been the movie. I, yeah, I've heard him say that. I don't agree with him. I don't think All Good Things I, I, I've always thought that was an interesting take. Yeah, it's, a, it's yeah. fascinating that that's what they think, but All Good Things 
is too insular to be a film. Yeah, you're not going to bring in outside viewers no, with that. It's very definitely concluding what you've spent seven years watching. Right. Whereas Generations feels like they're opening it up. A they bit. wrote Generations right. over like a weekend, right? Right, because they had... Yes, they were given very limited time to work on it because they were so busy with All Good Things. Yeah, they did All Good Things. They wrapped... They turned in the script for All Good Things. They're like, okay, we need a movie script and we need it Monday. And here are the requirements that Shatner has. Yes. Yeah, that's another thing you have to take into account. They're dealing with Shatner and Patrick Stewart's rampant egos as well. Right. Which can't be... Right. Um, but yeah, th- this is these issues really do capture something about the spirit of the original series. It, not so much the feeling of the mo- of that first movie, but but it is kind of creating a hybrid between that first movie and what people more generally understood to be Star Trek. Yeah, and as somebody who's genuinely fascinated with that that five year mission post the motion picture because mm-hmm. essentially what you've got there is if you subscribe to the idea as well that there is a five year mission after Star Trek 4 as well right. because of the if you have a look at 2, 3 and 4 all flow into each other over a period of about 3 months and then 5 picks right. up a few months later when the ship's not working and we're rebuilding it but by the time you get to 6 they're all retirement age so the right. there's got to be something yeah. in between so there's another five so what you've got there is you've got the first five year mission of the TV show when Kurt's full of piss and vinegar and the, the thrust of youth and his first captaincy and all of that. Then you've got a five-year mission after the motion picture where he's a little bit more mature and seasoned and not quite leaning into solving all his problems with a fist fight. And then you would have the five-year mission where he's at the end of his career and he knows that this is probably going to be his last five-year mission as a captain. You've got those wonderful... You've got, you see the entire spectrum of his life, though, of him at three different times of his life. And I think they've not really explored... It seems to me they've explored every aspect of the Star Trek universe, but not done enough to explore the differences in him as a character in between the first five-year mission, his second five-year mission, and his final five-year Right, like, it's so strange that he is obsessing over becoming an old man Mm. in Wrath of Khan. Yeah. Because he's what, like... 50. In his 40s. Yeah, I think it's supposed to be his 50th birthday, isn't right, it? Right, right. And, like, you get the fact, I've just turned 50, I still feel 30. So you, mm-hmm. you've got that idea that in the 23rd century, surely 50's nothing. Right, right. Yeah. It just... So, no, I, I'm right there with you. The the That is sort of fertile territory for expanding Star Trek, mm. really sort of without getting in the way of much of what else is being done right now. Yeah. Yeah, with that, because all that stuff's gone now. If you're going to focus on a Kirk, it's going to be the Strange New Worlds Kirk, which is ten years right. before we know him. Or it's going to be the Kelvin right. universe, which is a completely different version of Kirk, and not the, right. the thoughtful, introspective man of the TV show. It's the the audience interpretation of who he is, which is not who he is. Right. So you've got all right. of that. Kirk by way of Han Solo. Yeah. So you've got a lot of, of scope, though, that, like you said, I, you know what I would love? I would love Big Finish to get the rights to Star Trek. And be able Ooh, to do that'd be great. adventures, the five-year mission after the motion picture. That's where I would love to see them set them. Their or IDW. Or IDW. Sure. So yeah, and IDW did year five. So they did a they did year five. So they did they finished out the original five-year mission, hmm. and it was um, good. Yes, it is, it is good. It is good. But Mike W. Barr did it in the DC one, and I'll always have a soft spot for that one. Oh right, because he did all good things before all good things. His oh, his last yeah. his last mission of the five-year mission is back to Talos Right. And if you've never read it, go and find it. Because Mike W. Burr's first mission with Kirk as captain, and then his final mission with with Kirk as captain, that original, are two of the best 
Star Trek comics I think I've ever read. Think, I think DC still had the rights when the Star Trek the early years was happening, or the lot something. It was the the Pike years. That's Marvel. Marvel the, got the a, rights back. Is it Marvel? Yeah. That was Marvel got them back. Yeah. Okay, I remember that one pretty vividly. That's good. That's a good series. That I went yeah. and reread that post Strange New Worlds, and you can kind of still sort of almost still make it fit because the Pike right. of Strange New Worlds is is a couple of years on from the Cage. Right. Whereas early voyages leads into the cage and then picks up right. after the cage. So it's so the introduce so when in the cage he's talking about all the people who died, early voyages spends six or seven issues showing you who those characters are and building them up and then kills them off. Right. And then picks up right. after and it, the only thing wrong with that series is they don't adapt the cage. <clears throat> right. I always thought they should have done like like DC did, like at the point where the cage happens, they should have done an annual that adapted the cage. And then picked up. That would have been it. cool. Yeah, because Early Voyages is well worth going back and rereading. I think it's really good. Yeah, and that and that was something that at that point I was fascinated with because there's at that point there was that one episode yep. with that captain and nothing else. Yeah, well, I'm the same as you. And that that thing that I mentioned earlier about you see Kirk over his life and the characters going over a journey, but then you've got that 14 years previously that there was another mm-hmm. captain on the Enterprise and another crew had adventures. And I would devour any Captain Pike novels or comics that came out. Because of that, yeah. there's this whole other captain here we know nothing about. I would honestly take Robert April. Like, give me some Robert April. I want to see I want to see the first voyages of the Enterprise. Like shaking out I, the kinks. I will and- say I liked I liked the version of Robert April introduced in Strange New Worlds. I'd like to see more of him. Yeah, give us a couple of telly movies with him. Stranger in. Worlds is just all around amazing. Yeah, the oh. thing that gets me about Strange New Worlds, Jim, though, is is what's it? Somebody had to say to them, well, what if we just do Star Trek? <laughs> and I'm like, really, guys? Someone had to say that to you? Because, you know, not just slag anybody on any of the other Paramount Plus shows, it hasn't felt like Star Trek. So I will I will speak in defense of the others. I, I really like, especially the last several seasons of Discovery. Um, I think they're operating in a space that is closer to Deep Space Nine than original series. So it's sort of developing in two directions, right? You've got sort of the Discovery wing that is much more interested in the kinds of issues that DS9 was dealing with. Mm. And then you've got the wing that's more in the original series, Next Generation, episodic space. Yeah. I think the thing that I liked about Discovery, and I didn't dislike Discovery, I think the yeah. la- what it, what it is is that early season, that first season, just because they could swear and be a bit more graphic and violent, it mm-hmm. kind of felt like they they were saying, "Look, this isn't your dad's Star Trek." But the right, problem right. with that is suddenly you take it far enough away that it doesn't feel like it should be Star Trek. I don't mind. I, I, I will love say, Spartacus. I think the swearing in Spartacus is massively creative. I don't know that I want that in Star Trek. Sure. I, I, I will say, it, it. I think Discovery took us a couple seasons to sort of find its legs mm. as far as the equilibrium between how much sort of more adult content are we putting in versus how much classic Star Trek are we bringing in. And, and I think jumping into the distant future was the best thing they ever did because now they are so far removed from everything else that possibilities are wide open they're not treading on anybody's toes now but also they lost yeah. jason isaacs and i love jason isaacs yeah. and then he was very good well, they, they've got georgie right there and she was great right. and they kind of yes. shuffled her off as well 
And they keep making noises that she's getting a spinoff, um, but we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. I if think that part happens. of that is the actress keeps on doing movies. So, yeah, right. the actress is successful, but, damn it. <laughs> yes. That is what happens when you cast a, a huge star in one of your supporting roles. Yeah. <laughs> and the same, it's the same with Isaac still, really, isn't it? You could see that mm-hmm. he's a big film star. He's not going to commit to five, six, seven years on a TV show, but he'll do a year of it simply because he was a Star Trek yeah. fan. Right. I would actually say the biggest miss, misstep that Stranger Worlds has actually done yet is their version of Kirk. <laughs> Yeah, I'm willing to give them benefit of the doubt because it was only the one episode. Right. Uh, I kind of... So, also that it's an alternate timeline. No, Strange New Worlds isn't. Oh, no, that episode was... Well, you, no, you're right. That, that yeah. episode. You're absolutely right, yeah. That, that is a version of Kirk that is developed because of very specific things that get undone later. Yes, you are correct. So that isn't our Captain Kirk. So you're no. spot on. So that's why I'm willing to give them that benefit of the doubt, yeah. But that actor was fine but he didn't have Shatner Slyker in Yeah, him. not quite, no. That, 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 that little coy smile, like, oh. Yeah. Hello. Which, that's something that even even when Chris Pine is not my favorite version, he has those moments. Yes. Like, he can he can give just the right look at Spock or at McCoy, and you see bits of Shatner in there. Yeah, and that, that's another thing. Pine is a charismatic actor, and you see it in yeah. everything he's done. He's brilliant in Wonder Woman. There's, um, there's a Western... Uh, um, um, Hello High Water that he's absolutely yes. fantastic in because he's got that movie star charisma that Shatner had and now I'm hoping Paul Wesley's got it and like you right. say he was playing not our Kirk so right. okay. and I'm hoping that was a deliberate yes, choice I'm with you I'm right with you so I'm hoping <laughs> that second season we see a little bit more of Kirk's cocky swagger the nice thing about Chris Pine though is Chris Pine just seems like he's always game mm-hmm. like Oh, is is there is there a check in it? Do I get to work? Do I get to work as an actor? Sure, let's go. Yeah, he but, does seem very enthusiastic about just doing the job, yeah, and getting to sort of play to, to the point where he's. I, I hate to get into freaking internet drama, but of course, because I live with a no longer teenager but close enough, I kind of get some of the internet drama when the whole drama was um, going around about "Don't worry, darling." Hmm. He just kind of right. seemed like done with the whole thing, like. I'm just here to act, guys. I'm not here to feed internet drama. Yeah, I've done my job. I'm here to promote the film. Let's do that, and then I can go. Yes, on. he actually seems legitimately excited about the Dungeons and Dragons movie he's going to be in <laughs> next year, which is funny. Hey, it, the trailer is fun, so yeah, I'll I'll definitely watch it. The whole family's it's probably got an I, I love Albers. I love Albers so much. <laughs> anyway. When we start talking about Owlbears, I do believe that means it is time to wrap up this this episode of Tomb of Ideas. Uh, first off, Andy, thank you so much for joining us. That was fun, yes, that. It's been a pleasure. It was great. I very much enjoyed it. I will always talk Star Trek. Ask my family. And please tell people tell people where they can find you, uh, where they can find your stuff. Uh, the Palace of Glittering Delights is my vanity project, where I basically talk about whatever the hell I want. Uh, mostly old ITC shows that I grew up watching, Star Trek and Spider-Man comics. That seems yes. to be its, its prime reason for being. Hey Kids Comics with Michael, my son, has five years worth of back episodes plus annual Christmas specials since he inconsiderately grew up and left home. They're all available on 223freaks.com. We've got a new show coming in the new year all about The Prisoner, the Patrick mm. McGowan television show from the 1960s where Bill Robinson and One I... One of the best TV shows of all time. I knew there was a reason I liked you. Um, 
where Bill Robinson and I tried to convince two other people that it is one of the best television shows of all time. <laughs> and Michael Bailey and I do the Overlooked Dark Knight when we talk about Batman, which isn't dead, honest, but Michael has been exceptionally busy and we haven't yeah. been able to record an episode. And I'm on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and just come by and say hello and talk. Yeah, er- earlier you asked, what is canon? And I'm like, I'm pretty sure it's a show you talked about on The Palace at one point. Yeah, no, that was Cowan. <laughs> that, was an old, that was an old Edward Woodward spy show from the 1970s. And for those of you, our listeners, who have not checked out Overlook Dark Knight, um, it is a gr- very fun show. You guys did a great episode on one of my favorite batman superman projects generations yep love that love generations well the first two anyway and you also did (laughs) um batman meets captain america which we've also done on our show that was our april fool's episode because it's great it is yes it's a lot of fun even if it rips off the rocketeer but if you're going to rip something off rip off the rocketeer and of course you can always find us uh we're still on twitter for now yeah it's not blown up as long as it exists right (laughs) at tomb of ideas our facebook is facebook.com slash tomb of ideas our email and we love to get emails from you hint 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 is tomb of ideas at gmail.com and we're now on instagram we have um i'm not sure how to do instagram address is it just at tomb of ideas again yeah pretty much okay yeah it's at tomb of but ideas pretty much anywhere you look look for at tomb of ideas we, we're probably there um but uh, we're also proud members of the Cinepunks podcasting group. That means you'll find our entire back catalog on Cinepunks.com. That's Cinepunks with an X. Um, you'll also find other great shows like Cinepunks, uh, The Carnage Report, uh, Cinema Smorgasbord, uh, Horror Business, Twitch of the Death Nerve, and many more. So check out Cinepunks.com. And until next time, Tomb Believers, live long, long and, and prosper. prosper. Engage.